you again to our services this morning. Thank you for joining us. Isn't it great to sing praises to God that uh, reflect on what he has done for us? That last song, let me just read one verse of it. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. We didn't pay for our sins. We couldn't pay for our sins. But Jesus could and Jesus did. So God the Father looks on the Son. He looks at the Son. He sees me as a, behind the filter of His Son, Jesus Christ. And, and that filter is the blood of Jesus Christ that pardons and cleanses me from my sin. Both my original sin and the sins that I commit, uh, and uh, even as an individual who has made those choices to commit those various kinds of sin. So this morning we're going to continue our series in the book of Second Peter, and that song actually fits very nicely with our message this morning. We are going to talk about some incredible things that are true and things that you and I as the children of God need to be working on in our lives. But the key is that we are the children of God. We can't work on these things. We can't make these things true in our lives, in our own power, in our our own strength. They can only be true because we have trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior. Now, last week we started our study in the sequel to Peter's first letter. I gave you a simple overview of the book of 2 Peter. The overview previewed Peter's purpose in writing to those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And because of the fact they put their trust in Jesus Christ, they were suffering. Things were not going well for them. It wasn't because there was a a, a, a downturn in the whole world situation. It was because they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ And they were being persecuted for what they believed about Jesus Christ. The fact that he was the son of God, he died on the cross, he paid for their sins, he reconciled them to the Holy Father. And that is why they were suffering persecution and uh, different torment in their lives. So he wrote for them to be able to take hope and comfort and knowing that God would be with them and be by their side. So we talked about the truth that the original readers of this letter might begin to understand understand. Um, and then you and I, by extension, if you will, can also benefit and understand things that Peter wrote that would help us in the lives in which we live. Peter wanted to encourage the believers to press on. Even in difficult times, press on. And he wanted them to be faithful even when things were difficult in their lives. I think Peter wants his readers, and I think he wants you and I, to know that even though we have trusted Christ as our Savior, it doesn't mean that life is going to be easy and without struggles. Life will be difficult. So as we get started this morning, let's talk about our title. You look at it on the screen, and the title is, Work It Out. Have you ever said that as a parent to your children? Work it out. Or maybe as a teacher in a classroom setting, work it out. You know what that means? That means there has to be some effort 
put forth by those who are in the midst of the struggle. Those that need to work it out. They have to put some effort into it. Now you'll notice that the it is in capitals there. What is the it all about? Anybody have any ideas? When Peter is saying, work it out, what is he talking about? Very good. First answer. Okay, work it out. The it there is your salvation. It's our salvation. So it's important that we stop here and talk about our salvation for a moment. It's imperative that we understand how salvation happens. And and, and let me start by saying that Peter is not in any way advocating a works-based salvation. Okay, when he says work out your salvation, he is not saying that there is a bunch of things that you need to do in order to be saved. Because no matter what you and I do, there is no way we can work enough to get saved. Remember in verse 4 when Peter said that we have been given some pretty amazing promises? We talked about those promises last week. Those promises were in reference to our eternal destiny. Then later in verse 4, he told us that we have become partakers of the divine nature. The nature, because it's divine, the nature then is of who? It's of God. It's God's nature. We have become partakers of God's nature. Now, how does one become a partaker of the divine nature? How does one come to know Jesus as their Savior and then receive His nature? Well, it begins with the preaching of the gospel. Okay, The preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. And by preaching, I'm not speaking about what we do here on Sunday mornings and you stand behind this desk and you talk to the people who are seated in front of you. That's not the preaching we're talking about, okay? There's a, that's a, there's a different kind of preaching, okay? Um, Paul commands Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That's what we do on a Sunday morning here at Calvary Baptist Church. And we prayed for our sister churches around the state and around the area and even around the country, and we could even say around the world, except it's not happening at the same time as we're doing it right now, if we're talking about around the world. But that's what we do when we stand up and we proclaim to you the truth of God's word. And let me say, when a pastor stands behind the pulpit, that he better preach God's word. He has no right to preach anything other than God's word. It's a sacred trust that a pastor has with God as he's been called into that ministry to preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. Sometimes, sometimes it's not easy to do that. I mean, I love to preach, okay? And I love to preach what we call expository preaching, okay? You pick a book and you preach through the book. Now, that, that kind of helps my job a little bit because then people can't say, Pastor, you're preaching at me. No, I'm preaching the book. I'm preaching the word. I'm preaching what the text says. I'm not preaching at you. If the, if the text hits you between the eyes, then that's God, not me. That's a little aside because we're not talking about that kind of preaching. 
So you say, Pastor, what kind of preaching are you talking about? Well, we find the preaching that I'm talking about here and Peter's talking about. We find Paul talking about in 1 Corinthians 1.18. The King James, uh, many of us are familiar with the way it's written in the King James, and it says this, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to us that are being saved, it is the power of God. So the word preach here is used in both verses. Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. And Paul tells the Corinthians, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them who are perishing. Um, so the, verse, the words have different meanings, okay? What we do on Sunday morning is the Greek word keriso, okay? Keruso. It means to proclaim, to tell, and here at Calvary we strive to preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. The word used in 1 Corinthians where Paul is speaking about the preaching of the gospel, it actually is, and this might surprise you, it actually is the word logos, okay? You say, pastor, how can that word mean preaching, Well, it does, because the word logos, and we often say around here that the word logos means the word. It means word. So it means this word, and it means the living word, Jesus Christ himself. It's the very word, it's a very important word in the New Testament, and it's used as a name for Jesus. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the what? Was the word, and the word was God. Jesus was God, is God, always will be God, and the Word was with God. The ESV has a very good translation of uh, 1 Corinthians 1 8, where it says, This, for the word of the cross is folly. That's that word uh, preaching. The preaching of the cross is foolishness. The ESV says, The word of the cross is folly. The New King James Version here, one that most of us use at Calvary, says, For the message of the cross is foolishness. It's clear to see that this preaching is really just talking about the life and the death of Jesus Christ, communicating the gospel to others so they may come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Oftentimes, those who hear the gospel, hear the word of God, hear the good news, if you will, think that we're talking nonsense when we tell them that Jesus, God, loves them, sent his son to die on the cross and to sacrifice his life for us so that mankind can be redeemed. They say, oh, that's nonsense. That's ridiculous. That's exactly what Paul said their response would be. It's foolishness. But to those of us who are saved, those of us who know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, oh man, you know what that is? It's life. It's, it's the power of God. It's the dunamis, the dynamite of God. It's what keeps us going in our lives. That's what the Word of God is for the child of God. But let's back up for a moment. What is this Word, this message that you and I are supposed to be preaching? Well, it starts... We find it in 1 Timothy 1.15. Now, I know this isn't the verse that most people will take you to when they start talking about the gospel and the word, but listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, this is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance. Okay, Paul, you got my attention now. What is this trustworthy saying? What is this, word, what is this saying that is full of acceptance and everybody should hear it and listen and obey it? This is a trustworthy saying. Here it is. 
Are you ready? Are you waiting with bated breath? Here it is. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. There you go. Jesus Christ came into this world, his creation, to save sinners. That's you and that's me. At one point in our lives, we were all sinners. Jesus came into the world. Paul, or Paul says it over in Romans. They'll get to it in the teens class. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, John 3.16, we all know it. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ is the gospel message. And Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And you know what he says after that phrase? He says, of whom I am the foremost sinner. Have you ever talked to somebody and said, I'm too bad a sinner, God can't save me? You know what you can tell them? And I've, I've said this before to people. Sorry, you can't have that title. What do you mean I can't have that? Paul already claimed it. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul said, I am the foremost of all sinners. You can't have that title. And if God can save Paul, who was the chiefest of sinners, guess what? He can save you too. That's, my friend, what the gospel is all about. We talked about this some last Sunday night. Every person that has ever been born into this world, except for Jesus, was born with a, what kind of nature? People that were here last Sunday night. A sinful nature. And you weren't here, by the way. We were praying for you to get better and get out of the hospital. But that's okay to answer anyway. Um, You see, Jesus came to redeem that sinful nature. Every person enters this life, enters this world with a sin nature. You say, Pastor, you're talking nonsense. Don't say that because it's not me talking. It's what the Bible says. It's what the word of God says. Every person. How do you know that? Well, we jump over to the New Testament. We jump to a book that we're very familiar with. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For, you say the next word, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's not real good news, is it? All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have missed the target, missed the mark of God's calling in your life. All of us, every one of us. Well, certainly it's got to get better, Pastor. Well, you read uh, in the next step on the Romans road, says this, um, for the wages of sin is death. Uh-oh. But it's getting worse. It gets worse before it gets better. The wages... Now you stop and think about that for a moment. We work all week long, sometimes for two weeks, sometimes when we lived in South Africa, we only got paid once a month, okay? So we, we work, we do what we're supposed to do, we do what we've been called to do, what we've been hired to do, all week, all month, whatever. For what? For our paycheck, for our wages. It's what we deserve. <laughs> Paul says, The wages of sin, what you deserve, what everyone who has ever been born into this world, what you deserve is, you want it, you ready for it, is death. No, 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 pastor, I don't like that. Doesn't seem fair to me. Where's the union? Come on, we got to get some union representation here, right? 
Uh-uh. There's no getting around it. The wages of sin is death. We do, and what is the word? But. But. But the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, everlasting life through the representative, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay? You and I get this free gift. And it, the gift is eternal life in Jesus Christ. So now I have to ask this question. How do I unwrap this gift? How do I get this free gift? How is it applied to my account? Well, Paul explains it over in Romans chapter 10. He says this in Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and some people stop there. They don't go to the next part. Some people, they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, and that's it, full stop. That's not it. Paul continues on, same sentence, and says, and believe in your heart. You see, these little words that we sometimes take for granted are so, so important. But the gift of God is eternal life. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Finish it for me. You will be saved. You will be born again. You will be brought into the family of God. He goes on to explain that confessing with the mouth. He says, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Oh man, what amazing truth that God has allowed us to hear and understand and process and show us our need of salvation. So to sum it up, we must believe the word or the message about Jesus Christ. We must believe the word about the word, if you will. If you need help unwrapping this gift this morning, accepting Jesus as your Savior, please speak to someone before you leave here today. You know why? Because there's no guarantees for tomorrow. You're here at this moment. You're here because God wanted you here this morning. You should deal with that question, that unwrapping of the gift before you leave today. There's lots of people here who can help you. That was all the introduction, okay? Would you stand with me as we read together 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is our text for this morning. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Read it together with me. But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Thank you very much. Let's pray together and ask God to bless our time in his word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you for the privilege of being reconciled to you through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the message of the word. 
the word of the word, if you will. Father, we're thankful that somebody took the time to proclaim to us the good news that set us free from our bondage to sin and set us on the path to righteousness. Not our own righteousness, but the righteousness that comes to us through the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary when he died in our place so that we might be redeemed. Father, we are grateful for that salvation. And I pray this morning that if anybody here that does not know Jesus as their Savior, that today would be the day of salvation. Scripture says says to us that today is the day of salvation. Don't turn your back on the truth of God's word, as so many have. But rather, listen, let the Holy Spirit do the work that only the Holy Spirit can do in the heart and transform the life and bring regeneration into the heart of an individual. Father, we pray for your blessing upon our time in our text this morning. May we be challenged. May we be encouraged. May we, even if need be, rebuked uh, to begin living a life that honors you or to continue living a life that brings glory to your name. Thank you again for Peter's words to us. We know that they're not just the words of an individual, but because Peter was inspired by the Holy Spirit, they are your words to us and are as effective for us today as they have ever been. So bless our time, we pray in the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. This morning we're going to dig into this text now to see what we have just read. There's some pretty impressive things that we find in this passage of scripture. First of all, we see a call to action. Peter says, it's time to stop sitting around. It's time, it's time to stop loafing. It's time to get involved. It's time to start working it out, if you will. The call to action. Why are we called to action? That's a good question, right? And you know, not all of us are still three years old, and that's the favorite word that comes out of our mouth, why? But as we begin looking at our text this morning, we first see the why we are called to action. Peter says, for this very reason. Paul gave us a specific reason in verse 4. The reasons include the receiving of those precious promises that we talked about. These promises only come because one has trusted in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. These amazing, precious promises that he mentioned last week. For God did not spare the angels who sinned. Oh, sorry, that's chapter 2. Verse Chapter 1 says this. Um, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. They're they're not just, you know, small kinds of promises. They are exceedingly great, and they are very precious promises that have been given to us from our great God. Okay? Uh, He also goes on to say in that verse that we are partakers of the divine nature. We have become new creatures in Christ. The old has passed away, all things are becoming new. You see, this divine nature that Peter is talking about here is is given to us from God. When God granted to us spiritual life, noon life, we received this nature, and this nature is like the nature of Jesus, the very nature of the Son of God. This call to action here is the call to nurture that new nature. Nurture the new nature that has been given to us. Peter says that we have escaped corruption in the world. Last week we learned that this corruption is the result of sin. Both Adam and Eve 
sin in the garden and they cast us all into this thing that we call um, sin that is passed on from one generation to the next. Passed on when a child is conceived, they receive that sin nature. And then, you say, well, that's not really fair, but hold on. Not only do you have a sin nature, you're just going to sin, right? We talked about that as well, how little babies sin. Doesn't take them long. We, nobody, no parent that's ever lived has taught their child to lie. No parent that has ever lived has taught their child to grab a toy from their brother or sister and run away with it because, not that because they want to play with it, but because they don't want their other sibling to have it. Did you ever teach your, ch- your children that? You never taught your children to be deceptive, right? That's the nature we have as humans. We have this thing called the sin nature. But God has allowed us to escape that corruption that is in this world, that is in this nature that we have. And that escape comes through trusting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You have to do that. As much as we love our kids, we can't do that for them. We can teach them, we can help them know what is right, we can help them understand the truth, we can communicate the good news to them, but we can't make that decision for them. It's not possible. It's a personal relationship, a personal decision. So we trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. You see, sin causes us to be corrupt, but the gift of salvation has delivered us from that corruption. So... You and I, as those who have been delivered from corruption, should be committed to the Lord and strive to honor Him in all that we do. You see, that's the why we're called to action. And Peter also says, now that you know that you're called to action, you need to work hard at it. We raised our children, as many of you did, to work hard. My, my youngest son, Micah, um, the first time when he was old enough, went up to Messina with us, and my brother had a boatload of things, just little kind of odd things that needed to be done. So we were going to spend the weekend, and he came to Mike, and he says, Micah, I'll pay you this weekend to do these things that I need to have done. And Micah was always into earning money, so he said, sure, I'll do that, Uncle Brad. And he went over to Uncle Brad's house and he started working and working and working and working and working. He worked the whole weekend and Uncle Brad came to dad afterwards and he says, you know, Micah, he's one of the hardest workers I've seen in a long time. He just works hard. He just keeps at it till the task is done. Peter says to us that we need to work hard at working out our salvation. He calls this call to action is not necessarily a call to leisure. It's not an easy job. It's a difficult call. It's a call that requires effort on our part. Now, as I already said, understand that Peter is not calling us to work for our salvation. Rather, he is telling us that we should work hard because of our salvation. There's a lot of religions in our world today that have it backwards. They say that you have to do this. There's seven things, seven rules. 
Well, let's call them what they call them. Seven sacraments that you have to keep in order to get to heaven. Can I tell you this? There's absolutely no way that you can keep all seven of those sacraments. You know why? Because one says you can't be married, and another one says you have to be married. You ever think about that? It's not possible! You say, well, what about the Ten Commandments? Can we get saved by keeping the Ten Commandments? Can I tell you this? That ain't possible either. Anybody ever try? We fail regularly when we try in our own strength to keep the Ten Commandments. But you see, there's this man that was sent from heaven. His name is Jesus. Jesus kept those Ten Commandments. Why? Because he didn't have a sin nature. Why? Because he, wasn't, he, wasn't, he didn't come into this world by a, hu- a man and a woman coming together. He came into this world because God sent him into the world born of a virgin. Didn't have a sin nature because he's God. He came into this world not able to sin. He proved that. He showed that. He demonstrated that to all mankind. And then he went to a cross and he hung on a cross and he took your sins and he took my sins to forgive us and to wash away our sins so that we might be born again. That work we could never do no matter how hard you work. But Peter says, now that you have this gift of salvation, work it out. Show others that you know Jesus Christ as your Savior by the way you work. Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Philippians. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, get this phrase, work out your own salvation. Again, not saying work for your salvation, but work so you show your salvation. How do you do it? With fear and trembling. How do I have the ability to do that? Because he says in verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good. Good pleasure. Work out your own salvation and work hard at it. Keep doing it. Don't stop. Okay, pastor, I, I get that I'm supposed to work out my salvation, but what do I do? How do I work out my salvation? And that's where we find our text this morning. Peter says to us that we need to add to our salvation. What to do? Add to your salvation. This word add, it's an amazing word. It's a very interesting, it's a little word. And again, I, 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 we don't want to miss over these little words that are in the text, okay? He says, add to your salvation. What does he mean when he says add to your salvation? Well, this word add comes from the same Greek word that we get the word chorus from or choreography choreographer, okay? That word ad is the root of those words. In ancient Greek culture, the state, the, the, you know, the Athens or um, whatever the city-states were that made up Greece, um, they established a chorus, a singing group, and they also then hired a choragus, okay? Same Greek word as the word and, They supplied the chorus, but they did not supply much for the choreographer. So the choreographer, from his own money, paid for the training of the singers. Paid for those who would perform in the chorus. After all, if he didn't have anybody to sing, he wouldn't have anybody to lead. If he didn't have anybody to lead, guess what? He wouldn't have a job. Okay, So even though they supplied the chorus, they didn't supply the means for training the chorus. 
The chorus paid for the training of the chorus, and over time, an expected uh, or an accepted meaning of this word became the one who provided or supported someone or a group. And when he supported, he didn't just support them with a meager supply, but with an abundant supply of what was needed. So you see, Peter is calling for believers to add certain things in abundance for their growth and for the process of becoming more like Jesus. As Paul said, we don't work for our salvation, but our works show or demonstrate that we are saved. He put it this way, for we are Ephesians 2.10, you know it. We've referred to it many times. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should, let's make it simple, that we should do it. Okay? God wants us to do the work that he prepared in eternity past for you and you alone to do. That's the choreography. That's adding to your salvation. And it's not putting in as little as possible to get by, but the word add has this idea of abundance, over and above. Uh, Supply it to the best uh, ability that you have. Spend as much as it costs to make it happen. Peter is telling us that we need to be called to action. He moves on and he says, not only should you be called to action, but you also need to be committed to growing uh, through this process. You need to be committed to growing. We see that in the second part of verse 5 down through verse 7. This is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Okay, We, we see the, the, the virtues, if you will, that Peter lists for somebody who is growing. If we're in the process of adding to our growth, then we are in the process of continuing to become more like Jesus Christ. We're growing in our relationship with him. Look at the first word there in, in the second part of verse 5. He says, add to your what? Your faith. Now, I, I don't want you to think we're getting real technical here, but I'm going to give you the, uh, the in fact, it's, it's on your paper. The Greek word for the word faith here is pistos, okay? It's the word, um, it's the word faith. We, we translate it as faith. And here's the definition. It is the firm belief in what is true. The firm belief in what is true. We've simplified our definition of faith then for this morning, haven't we? Because we normally define faith as um, believing that God is able to do what he says he will do in ordering my life accordingly. But why would I believe what God is able to do? Because it is true. It is true. And because it's true, I'm staking my whole life on the truth of God's word. So, a firm belief in what is true. As the first thing in the list, faith, we could properly assume, we could properly guess that faith is the beginning or the foundation, and then everything else is something that is added to our faith. Again, over in Ephesians 2a, I already quoted verse 10 to you, but verses 8 and 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through what? You've been saved through faith. And a lot of times, that's kind of where in our thought process, we stop with that verse, isn't it? But he goes on to say, and that, and what? And that faith is not of yourselves. 
You didn't get the faith from yourself. It's not inherently residing in you. You didn't get it when you pulled yourselves up by the bootstraps. You did not have access to this faith. God gave it to you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. For it is what is faith is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Since we're talking about growing, I like the comment that MacArthur makes about this word faith here in verse 5. He says this, saving faith, get this, saving faith is the ground in which the fruit of Christian sanctification grows. Remind me, what is that word? You don't have to remind me, but remind us. What is that word sanctification? What is it? Okay, becoming like Jesus. Sanctification is being set apart. Set apart to God, set apart from the world. Okay, so MacArthur says, the fruit of Christian sanctification, faith is the ground in which sanctification grows. But that faith battles the flesh. Anybody have that happen in your life? The faith battles the flesh and will not produce a firm sense of assurance unless saints pursue sanctification. In other words, unless they work it out. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So we start off with faith. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you don't have the faith. That's harsh. That's true. Not harsh. It's a fact. I won't go on about any sports-related facts this morning. It's a fact, okay? That if you're here this morning and you don't have the faith, you can't add to faith anything. You can't work out your salvation because you don't have it. Next, Peter says, add to your faith. He says, virtue. Add to your faith, virtue. The idea of this word virtue here is to have fortitude, is to have moral excellence. It's finding favor or being pleasing to God. That's the virtue. That's the word virtue, to have fortitude. In other words, keep on doing it. Don't stop. Your pursuit of moral excellence should be ongoing, never ending. Now, Understand this, there's only one way to please the Lord our God. And it's the same way today as it was in Peter's day and every time period since then. How is it that you and I please the word of God, or please God? How is it that we have moral excellence? How is it that we find favor with God? Well, it is by obeying the word of God. Virtuous people are those individuals who live life according to the book, okay? And they do life in a way that honors the Lord. That's what a virtuous person is. So add to your faith virtue. And add to your virtue, he goes on and he says, add to your virtue knowledge. Knowledge. Now, what is knowledge? Well, knowledge is not the pursuit of intellect, okay? It's not trying to gain more information. It's not the pursuit of intellect, but it's spiritual knowledge focused on the person and work of God. 
Sometimes our world is caught up in getting more and more knowledge. You've heard of these people that are professional students. All they do is go to school. That's not what school was ever intended to be. School is intended to be a means to an end. You go to school, you learn what you need to learn, and then you start doing what you needed to learn or what you've learned. You start putting it into practice. You start doing it. Somewhere along the line, somebody came up with this idea, if I keep learning, I really don't have to do what I've, what, what I've learned. I can just keep learning. And that's a good, that's, right? See, that's the pursuit of knowledge, worldly wisdom. That's what they want more and more and more. You can talk to them. The funny thing is, when you talk to them, they often don't make a lot of sense. Because they have so much stuff going around, floating around in their head, that they really can't bring it down to a level that people understand because they've never had to do it. Add to your virtue knowledge. As a child of God, my knowledge must be focused on the person and work of God. You see, it's not about gaining facts and data. Anybody remember the movie Short Circuit? There was a guy in that movie. I mean, it wasn't really a guy, but it was, his name was Johnny Five. Number Johnny Five. Okay? He was the robot that came to life because of a malfunction. And once he was alive, he needed to have what? What's the word? Input. Megabytes of input. He read all the books he could get his metallic fingers on, but that wasn't enough. So what did he do? He set out to the streets. He hit the streets to gain more input. 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 Megabytes of input. He wanted to have more input. You see, for the child of God, you and I should strive to have more input. What is the input? The input is all about the person, the work of Jesus Christ. It's about the word. It's about the written word and the living word. We must have more input about Jesus Christ. But as we gain that input, we continue to then live out the input that we're gaining. We want to do the things that Jesus did so that others will see our life has been changed and there's more to our life. One book, there's, in this one book, there is more input than we will ever be able to master. We'll never learn it all. We'll never know it all. There's always something new to learn about our God. But in the process of learning it, we are becoming more like our Savior, and then we are living it out so others can learn about our Savior as well. Add to your knowledge, Peter says, self-control. Literally, this word self-control means to fight against one's self. Fight against one's self. Paul explains this plan for self-control over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, where he writes, But I discipline my body, and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself have become disqualified. You can work as hard as you want, but if you break the rules, guess what happens? You get disqualified. If you don't do it the way you're supposed to do it, you get disqualified. We've seen in the Olympic competitions, people work hard and work hard and work hard, but try to cut corners a little bit, and then they fail a drug test. And guess what happens? Whatever they thought they earned gets stripped away from them because they are disqualified. Paul says, I beat my body. I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I become disqualified. Oftentimes, you and I, 
We are our own worst enemy. I say that with the greatest of love. We often are our own worst enemies. It, it is me that causes me to be out of control. Probably all of us have had a time in our lives when we became so focused on one particular thing, perhaps it's acquiring something, or we become so focused on one particular goal that we've set for ourselves that that is the thing that drives us. That is the thing that our lives are wrapped up in a moment. And most of the time, those things are temporal things and are short, based in a short period of time and have little impact on us at all. And they certainly don't have eternal impact. I'm surprised my wife didn't say it last night. Although I wasn't really that passionate about the game last night because it just, they, they fell apart. I, I did talk to the TV a lot last night. Like, like really? You're going to bring him in? He's not even your best pitcher. Why are you bringing him in? It makes no sense. I guess I was a little excited. Normally, though, when I get excited like that, she says, you realize that that has no eternal value. That has no impact on, the, on, the eternal, on your eternal life. Yes, I understand that, but it sure does right now. <laughs> you see, we get so focused on the things that don't matter. Maybe it's in the house. Maybe it's at the job. But it doesn't really matter. When I yell at the Yankees or I yell at Aaron Boone on the TV... My wife says to me often, they can't hear you, and it doesn't really matter anyway. Does it have any significance in your well-being? It doesn't really. No, it doesn't. The answer obviously is no. And, and, and my focus, our focus should be on living my life in a way that shows others my love and my commitment to God. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy or try to enjoy a game. But it means that, that enjoying that game shouldn't be the priority in your life. Serving your Lord should be the priority in your life. Add to your knowledge self-control. Add to your self-control perseverance. I love this Greek word, hypomene. Okay? It means remaining under. It means standing fast even in difficult times, you stand fast. We sing that song, he will hold me fast. That word has nothing to do with how quickly you move from one point to another. In fact, that actually means quite the opposite. Okay? When he holds me fast, he holds me steady in one place. He holds me firm in one place. I am to be fast. I am to stand fast even in difficult times. What do I stand fast in? I stand fast in the word. When I was growing up, and when I think of the word persevere, I think of not giving up. I don't necessarily equate the hard times to the word persevere, but that's what this word here that Peter uses is talking about. It's talking about persevering even in difficult times. If you work hard at a particular thing, you don't give up. You keep on working at it until the task is done. You persevere until you eventually master that skill. 
You see, when Peter instructs us to persevere, he wants us to keep going even though it may not be easy, even though it could be very difficult. Keep going on in the midst of struggle. Keep going on in the midst of being mocked by others. Keep going on even if people are scorning you in the process. It's not just about sticking with it. It's sticking with it even when we see results that may end in our physical discomfort or our physical harm. Keep sticking with it. Persevere. Add to your knowledge or add to your self-control. Perseverance. And then add to your perseverance godliness. Godliness. Now, this is, you might think, how do I add godliness to my list of traits? Well, godliness here is man's obligation to foster reverence towards God. I need to do things in my life that will encourage me, that will foster me to have the right reverence towards God. You see, godliness is what we strive for as believers. Paul reminds us, uh, again writing to young Pastor Timothy, he says, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value even in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. You think about that. You know, is there, this is a very appropriate passage of scripture for us today, this, this verse to Timothy from Paul. Bodily exercise profits little. He doesn't say there's no value in it, but what has our world for the last couple of years become very intently focused on? The body. Yeah. And there's all kinds of things that you can do to become more fit. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But what Paul is saying when he tells Timothy bodily training is of some value or little value, it means that it's temporary. It's only for the here and now. We live in a world that puts extreme value on fitness. There's gyms all over the place. And again, nothing wrong with that as long as it holds the right place in your life. Paul says godliness, though, is far more valuable and far more important than physical fitness. Fitness has a personal value, but it is only temporary where godliness has value for all who know you here and now and associate with you, and it has eternal value. So what Paul is saying and Peter is saying, if you have to choose between the two, choose godliness. Because godliness has far greater, far longer value than personal training has. Now we need to, again, don't, God has told us that our body is what? His temple. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are his, in your mind, which is his. Okay? So we need to see our, our body as a gift from God, and we need to steward it properly. We need to have good stewardship for our body. But the most important thing, Paul says, is add to your perseverance, godliness, and that godliness is fostering reverence toward God. He goes on, add to your godliness, brotherly kindness. Okay, here, listen to this word. We know this word. Um, It's called Philadelphian. Okay, the act of bestowing favor on another. 
Add to your godliness the act of bestowing favor on another. You hear in that Greek word a word that we have given as a name to a city. The city of Philadelphia. The city of brotherly love. Now, can I tell you this? Some have dubbed the name of this city the city of brotherly shove. Back in the 70s and the 80s, the city's hockey team was known for its rough and tumble type of hockey. Right, Nick? They were fighters and they were bullies. If you saw the, the person who epitomized the Philadelphia Flyers in the 70s and 80s is a guy by the name of Bobby Clark. Great hockey player. He was a center, and, and he won the MVP several times in the league. He led the league in scoring. But were you following hockey back then? Okay, every time you saw a picture of Bobby Clark, what was missing in the picture? His teeth. His front teeth. Why? Because they got knocked out because he got in so many fights. Jim told me, he said, I went to a, I went to a boxing match and a hockey game broke out. You see, the city of brotherly shove is actually the exact opposite. Here's, here's what um, a guy that played on the Philadelphia Flyer said. In that era, you came into the spectrum, and I went to the spectrum. It was a lovely place. Um, we, think about, we think about nothing but winning, and we think about nothing but taking advantage of you, Kelly said. No one was going to come into our house, the spectrum, and intimidate us or beat us, and we played even tougher on the road. We thought nothing about bench-clearing brawls. We thrived on that. The more they wrote about us, the worse we were. He doesn't say that with regret. He says, says that with pride. This is what we were. That's the exact opposite of what Philadelphia is supposed to be about. William Penn, the founder of the city, gave it that name, Philadelphia. And you know why he gave it that name? He, he said it's the city that uh, he, we named this the city of brotherly love because we envision a city of religious, religious tolerance. And that's not in a bad sense. That's because they came from a place where they didn't have any religious freedom. So when they got to the new world, they were setting up a city where people could worship God the way the Bible says you should worship God. That's what Philadelphia was supposed to be about. Not the city of brotherly shove, but the city of brotherly love. As believers, we should demonstrate that kind of love. Now, I don't mean the kind of love that, um, you know, the love between brothers. How many people have brothers? Okay. Now, I'll be honest. My brothers and I, we fought a lot. That's what brothers do. I mean, if the Siemens were here this morning, and probably the Freedmans would, would attest, you, you come home and you often find the boys at each other. Sometimes it's in fun. Sometimes it's not. Okay? But you see, when I remember times when I... Oh, here's one time where, you know, the is gets lots of snow. We get snow a lot of months out of the year. So we go sliding. And, and you see, we didn't have a lot of money when we were growing up. So um, I saved a little bit of money that I could make doing things for grandpa or whatever. And, and I bought a sled, you know, one of those plastic sleds. Um, and I carved my name in it. And I went to the hill and I was sliding. And there was a bunch of other people over there. 
and somebody stole my sled. Bigger guy. I mean, he wasn't very big, but he was older. So I thought, well, he's going to come down the, slot, the hill, and every time people hit this part of the hill, they fall off their sled. And when they fall off their sled, it just kind of goes all the way down the hill. So I waited at the bottom of the hill. For my sled, okay? Just like I planned, he fell off the sled, and the sled comes going down the hill, and he's rolling around halfway down the hill, and I grab that sled, and I start to run. I'm just running just as fast as I can so I can get home with my sled. Guy starts chasing me. He's going to take my sled away from me. So as I get to the point where I can start seeing our apartment, I start yelling, Carl! Carl! Now, my brother was big. He wasn't necessarily tall, but he was just big. Okay? So he hears me yelling, and he opens up the door, and he says, what's the matter? I said, Greg's going to steal my sled. And Greg's like, slows down, and he says, Timmy stole my sled. So Carl takes the sled, and he looks at where I car. He says, it's funny, it says Tim Mowers on it. Well, 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 and he says, listen, he says, you leave my brother alone, you're going to have to deal with me. You see, here's the thing about brotherly love. You don't mess with your brother. Okay, you, you, he, and, and I'll tell you, he gave me a hard time. He's tie me up and do this and do that. But you know what? Nobody else could do that to me. Nobody else better mess with me. Otherwise, you have to deal with Carl or Bradley. Nobody had the right to, deal, to, to treat me poorly except for them. That's the idea of brotherly love. Nobody is going to bother you. Nobody else is going to hurt you. Nobody else is going to make your life difficult. We need to love each other and stick up for each other and stand for one another and do what others need for us to help them in their life, in their walk with the Lord. As believers, we need to demonstrate the love that a brother has for another that says nobody's going to bother you. Nobody's going to hurt you. Nobody will make your life useless in this world. The word literally means fervent, okay? A fervent love, a practical kind of caring love for others. You see that your brother has a need and it's in your power to help. What do you do? You meet that need. So you're adding to your uh, godliness brotherly kindness, And then he finally, he says, add to your brotherly kindness, love. And that love there is, guess what kind of love it is? It's the agape love. Okay, it doesn't exactly say agape there, but it's a form of agape. It's fostering fervent care for others. Strong defines this love as an active love, a love that demonstrates Romans chapter 5, verse 8. What does it say there? Uh, I've shared this with you many times, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see the kind of love that God had? God demonstrated his love. That's an active love. That's a love that, that does something for us. He goes on, Strongest goes on to say that this act of love should be shown to God, to each other, and even to our enemies. This kind of love is often sacrificial, and it always puts the needs of others ahead of our own needs and desires. Wow, 
What a list of traits that Peter has given to us here. And you know what? These traits are all rooted in God himself. Peter starts out with the faith God has granted to us to initiate our salvation. And then he ends with the love he demonstrated to us to make our salvation a reality. And he commands us to love others the same way, with that same kind of love. When we do this, we are showing others that God has surely transformed our lives and is able to transform their lives as well. We're going to wrap this up because we're just at the end of our time. We won't look at number, the, point, the third point this morning. We'll wait till next week to finish that off. But listen to this comment that the Bible Knowledge Commentary makes. It says, Interestingly, this symphony begins with faith and ends with love. Building on the foundation of faith in Christ, believers are to exhibit Christ's likeness by supplying these seven qualities that climax in love toward others. It's a symphony, a symphony of love, if you will, that you and I have the privilege and the ability to demonstrate to others only because God has done a saving work in our lives first. So again, this morning, I want to remind you, if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, we can help you with that. We can help you do that. If you're here this morning and you want to say, hey, you know what? I need to, I need to work it out better. I need to do a little more work on becoming, uh, demonstrating these virtues and adding these virtues to my life. Uh, let us know and we'll pray with you and we'll, we'll, we'll do what we can to help you in that regard as well. Thank you for joining us this morning. We're going to close in prayer and then Mark's going to come and lead us in our final song, great song for a closing, Oh, How He Loves You and Me. We take that love that he has for me and we start using it to love others as well. But let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this afternoon and we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you, Father, that you sent your Son. You demonstrated your love through your Son, Jesus Christ. That demonstration was active. Jesus hung on a cross Jesus took my sins, he took the sins of mankind, bore them in his body, paid the penalty for our sins, and in place makes it possible for us to have his righteousness. Father, our righteousness doesn't cut it, but the righteousness of Christ allows us to stand in your presence. Jesus comes before us and he says, I paid the penalty for his sins. I paid the wages of his sin. I took his death. I took her death so that they might have life. Father, thank you for that being your plan in eternity past. Thank you for making that plan become a reality in your son, Jesus Christ. And thanks for his willingness to do exactly that, to take on flesh, to suffer persecution and to die so that we might be rightly related to you. Thank you for loving us. Help us to love you in return. Father, we know that we can't love you in our own strength. We need your power, your ability to return the love that you have given to us. Not just to you, but to others, Father. Help us to love others as well. Peter challenged us that we take the brotherly kindness and we add to the brotherly kindness the love that Jesus demonstrated to us. Help us, Father, to look for people this week that we can demonstrate these virtues too, that they might also be able to add to faith these six other things. Father, thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.